From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Clark Gable was known as the King of Hollywood. He was just 59 when he died in 1960 on the cusp of some major changes to the understanding and treatment of coronary heart disease. A professor emeritus from Upstate has written a paper about this, and I'm happy to have Dr. Harold Smolian here in the HealthLink on Air studio with me. Thanks for being here, Dr. Smolian. A pleasure. Thank you. So I'd like to share with our listeners um, the summary, the abstract of the paper that you wrote. Um, I think it does a really nice job of laying out what happened. So let me just share that. Clark Gable was born in a small Ohio mining town and never finished high school. Stage struck as a young man, he did menial jobs while working his way up to a movie stardom. His most famous role was in Gone with the Wind. He married five times. During World War II, he enlisted in the Army Air Corps flew a few combat missions as a gunner, and won the Distinguished Service Cross. Personally, he was intermittently obese, a drinker, smoker, hypertensive, and predictably in 1960, he suffered an acute myocardial infarction, or heart attack. His clinical course was benign until the 10th hospital day when he suddenly died. No resuscitation was attempted. At the time of his death, preventive cardiology, mouth-to-mouth ventilation, closed chest cardiac massage, defibrillation, and coronary care units were in their infancy. So that's, that's the summary of the paper that you put together. Um, were you a fan of Clark Gable before you began researching this? Not particularly, although we were well familiar with his role in, in Gone with the Wind. Okay. Because back then, he was, he was the star. He was the leading man, right? Indeed he was. He's an icon in, in Hollywood. Well, I read through this. I read the whole paper. And did, did, were you aware that his older wives helped him improve his looks, paying for his dental care? And I knew very little about that, only that he was a star in Hollywood and learned more about it as we went through the history of his illness. Now, how do you go about researching this? Did you get medical records of his or...? His medical records, actual medical records, are not available because it is still privileged information. We tried to get what we could from the Hollywood Presbyterian Hospital where he uh, was hospitalized for his heart attack, uh, but those records were not available. So we have to go only to what was uh, published uh, about his illness in, in the media. In the media, and then biographies. And then I know you've... biographies and uh, going back through um, what information was available about his long, young life. All right. Well, your paper indicates that he had um, high blood pressure or hypertension a few months earlier um, when he had a physical exam for life insurance policy. Um, High blood pressure is a risk factor for heart disease, right? It is a risk factor, but at the time it was not very clear about risk factors because they weren't um, actually made well known uh, to the public until a few years after his death. And so there weren't, like, blood pressure medicines or anything that he... There were blood pressure medicines, but it wasn't absolutely clear that they were beneficial. Oh, wow. Wow. Um, Well, you also write about his severe periodontal problems. Um, Finally, he had to have all of his teeth removed entirely and replaced with dentures. Is there a connection between dental problems and cardiac problems? There is. Uh, Periodontal disease is sort of a minor risk factor for coronary disease. It's not as if clearer risk factor as some of the others, like a high cholesterol and so on. But it is a problem, and it also gave him bad breath, uh, which made it difficult for him in the kissing scenes with his leading ladies. <laughs> All right. Well, and didn't he have a family history of um, cardiac disease? He did. His father died of a heart attack as well. 
So in the 50s and 60s, were we aware, was the medical community aware that a family history could set you up for sort of the same risk? It wasn't identified as a risk factor, although I think many people were suspicious about it. Okay. Uh, but it wasn't until the Framingham study published these multiple risk factors that, that uh, they all became popular. The difficulty, of course, is you can correct some of the risk factors, but you can't do much about your family history. Right. That's it. Well, your paper talks about um, he had a smoking habit, three packs a day since the age of 16, and he was a heavy drinker, and his diet had a lot of meats and eggs and pasta, and then he had a habit of crash dieting with dexedrin? He did, because he would get obese uh, between movie films, and uh, at the, when time came to... Uh, to actually film some of the uh, cinemas that he was in. Uh, he had to lose weight uh, to look his best, so he had crash diets before many of the movies. Wow. So did that uh, contribute to heart disease as well, all of those lifestyle things? Well, obesity certainly does. Um, uh, I don't know that on and off obesity is any more risky than obesity itself. Um, okay. But that's what he had. Oh. Well, um Apparently, he began having chest pain while he was changing a tire on his Jeep, this um, severe stabbing chest pain, um, breaking out in a cold sweat. Those are classic signs of a heart attack, right? They are indeed. And, and his wife uh, at the time wanted to get him to the hospital, but he refused until the next day uh, when the pain recurred. Okay. And then once he did get to the hospital the next day, they diagnosed coronary thrombosis. What, what is that? That uh, implies that there's a clot in one of the coronary arteries that prevents blood from going through and supplying the blood that the heart needs to beat. Um, that, at the time, was the going theory for, uh, for heart attacks. So um, if something, I mean, someone could be diagnosed with that today, coronary thrombosis, right? Well, we probably would call it coronary occlusion, just occlusion. an obstruction, rather than indicating that it was a clot, although many of them are clots. Uh, we really can't tell until we do coronary angiography, which was, of course, not done at that time. Well, what did they do for him back then? Well, there was very little you could do. Uh, most patients who had heart attacks uh, during that period of time were just put to bed to rest, kept comfortable, sedated mildly, oxygen, and, and some of them, as he was, had an anticoagulant to thin the blood and prevent further clots from forming. So he had that? He did have that. Um, and then what would be done today? You mentioned angiography? Well, today the, the, the uh, care of patients with coronary disease is, is much, much different. There's been a sea change since he died in 1960. Um, if the patient uh, was reached medical care within 90 minutes of the onset of their pain, they would have a, a coronary angiogram to find the obstruction and then open it. Uh, if the patient was in a hospital that didn't have the available facilities to do coronary angiography, they could get a, a, a drug which would dissolve the clot. So there's a lot done now that prevents the complications that were so common then. So if we fast-forwarded and this happened to him in uh, 2018, his outcome may be different. I think it's very likely it would have been different because he died unexpectedly on his 10th hospital day. Uh, which was, uh, as I say, was unexpected because if you live that long after a heart attack, you usually make it. Um, he died suddenly, and, and nowadays uh, one would be able to pick up 
arrhythmias of the heart, abnormal cardiac rhythms uh, that might have predicted what was going to happen and they could have given him medications that might have prevented his sudden death. Did you, um, did they do like an autopsy and come up with a cause? No, no autopsy was done and no resuscitation was done because uh, the uh, techniques of cardiac resuscitation were just in their infancy at that time. Wow, so he just died and we really don't know for certain that it was related to the heart attack. Well, I think the, there was EKG evidence. The electrocardiogram was apparently strongly positive for a heart attack, so it's in all likelihood he did have one. Um, but the details about it were, were never really uncovered because there was no autopsy. Let me remind listeners, this is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking with Dr. Harold Smolian, a professor emeritus in cardiology who has authored several papers having to do with the history of medicine. And today, we're talking about his most recent paper on Clark Gable. Um, now, you detail his death on the 10th day of hospitalization uh, and that, that there were no attempts made to revive him using, um, they just used routine measures. So what did they have back then if they didn't have CPR, really? Well, there was very little they could do. Um, open chest resuscitation of the, of the heart had been described earlier, but that was a massive and, and um, very uh, injurious kind of way to open the chest and try and massage the heart uh, at the bedside. And it was very little done, although it had been described in the past. So it's not surprising that it wasn't applied in his situation. Wow. Well, if, if he were alive today, do you think that Clark Gable would have known ahead of time that he was at risk or high risk for heart attack? It's hard to say, but he did have several episodes of chest pain uh, well in advance of the heart attack, and it might have alerted him uh, that he had an incipient heart disease, and uh, perhaps it could have been looked into it uh, uh, before the heart attack actually occurred. Uh, but such things were really not available in 1960 when he died. But these days we have, I mean, that's, some, that's, a, that's a sign that a person might have a higher risk, right? Absolutely. A previous, um, okay. So mouth-to-mouth ventilation, um, closed chest cardiac defibrillation, um, closed chest cardiac massage, these are things that are part of a specialized coronary care unit, right? That's right. Um, that didn't exist back then. That, that's so. correct. Those things uh, developed shortly after his death and, and uh, became very well developed and were the basis for the uh, widespread utilization of specialized units to take care of people with heart disease. So when did CPR start? And that's part of, mouth-to-mouth ventilation is part of that, right? Yeah, mouth-to-mouth so. ventilation uh, was described uh, shortly after his, his death by a couple of anesthesiologists who showed that the, that the air that you breathe out was actually satisfactory for uh, ventilating people who couldn't breathe on their own. And, um, and still in use today. Well, yes, it can be used. It, it allows ventilation of an unconscious patient without specialized equipment. All you need is a, is a, a resuscitator by the victim's side. Uh, Defibrillation through the intact chest uh, was uh, an interesting story because it was instituted by the Edison um, electrical companies because they were having so many electrocutions on their linemen, and they were looking for some way uh, to uh, resuscitate them and prevent their death. And so they 
with the uh, with the help of a group from of engineers from Johns Hopkins University, uh, developed uh, this device called the defibrillator, which converted the uh, the abnormal heart rhythm from the electrocution back to normal. I had no idea that's where that was that came from, huh? All right, and that's still in use today. Oh, very much so. Very much so. Yes. All right. And then um, closed chest cardiac massage, what is, what is that? Well, that developed uh, when it became apparent that you could convert somebody who had an abnormal cardiac rhythm with a, with a defibrillator um, was a major step forward. But the problem was that the defibrillators were large and difficult to move around. Um, and so you, if you didn't convert the, uh, the abnormal rhythm promptly, the patient would die anyway. So you needed to buy time between the onset of the abnormal rhythm and the time of the defibrillation. And closed chest massage allowed you to uh, keep the patient alive, provide some circulation until a defibrillator could be brought to the bedside. Is that the other part of CPR where you're pressing on the chest? Well, it is. Uh, pressing on the chest keeps the circulation going okay. until you can do the defibrillation. All right. And, and then I understand the first coronary care unit opened in 1962, just That's a couple right. years after his death. Um, those are in all hospitals now, right? Well, they're not called coronary care units anymore because the care of patients uh, of this kind have changed so much. Uh, most people call them just cardiac units or cardiac uh, emergency care units or something of that kind because they take care of heart disease of all kinds, not just coronary disease. Well, can you walk me through, if Clark Gable arrived at a modern upstate university hospital um, today, what sorts of things would you expect would be done for him if he comes in, um, you know, complaining of the chest pain and sweaty after he was trying to change a tire on his Jeep? Well, he would have had a, um, an electrocardiogram and probably an echocardiogram uh, to make certain that the diagnosis of a heart attack was correct. Um, and if it was done promptly... Uh, within 90 minutes, the diagnosis made promptly. Uh, then he would have gone to the cardiac catheterization laboratory where they would have uh, demonstrated the occlusion of the coronary artery uh, by injecting contrast material and taking x-ray pictures of the uh, material going through the coronary arteries. Once having demonstrated that one of the coronary arteries was blocked, then that occlusion would have been opened uh, with a balloon uh, attached to the end of a catheter. And uh, by, by doing this uh, and opening the coronary artery before a great deal of damage is done to the heart itself, uh, many of the complications of heart, of heart attacks have been prevented. Wow. And um, how soon does the person recover from, you know, going to the cath lab and having that done? Oh, gee, that's, uh, that's a very short time. If everything is uncomplicated, patients are out of the hospital in a couple of days. As opposed to? Three weeks when I was an intern. Wow. Wow. <laughs> Things have come a long way. Well, this is very interesting. I really enjoy reading these papers when you put them together, and I appreciate you coming in to sharing, sharing them with us. It's fun. My guest has been Upstate Cardiologist and Professor Emeritus, Dr. Harold Smolian. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air.